Well, good morning, everyone. Happy Fourth of July. Thank you. Uh, welcome to Hawaii Kai Church, and thank you for joining us in worship. Uh, thank you for your prayers. I, I was not feeling too hot last weekend, uh, but no COVID. I got tested. Pastor Dave, he, he preached an excellent sermon, and I want you guys to know that he did that on a single day's notice. Uh, he did that without any complaint, and I say that because I just want to let you know, church family, what a hard worker and what a humble servant Pastor Dave really is, how good God is to us to give us such a gift like Pastor Dave, and uh, when you have a chance to appreciate him, please do that. Now, it has been a few weeks, but our <clears throat> church staff and a few others had the opportunity to attend this year's annual meeting for the Southern Baptist Convention in Tennessee. And for those of you who had no idea that we are a Southern Baptist church, well, we are. And at the same time, that is not something that we necessarily wear on our sleeves. Being SBC is not our identity. I know for some churches and for some people, they are, they are Southern Baptists first, almost before they are even Christian. That, that's not us. But one of the main convictions of the churches who make up the Southern Baptist Convention is that each local church is independent and autonomous, which means that there is no centralized authority like a, like a pope or a presbytery that can dictate what it is that we must believe or what it is that we must do. There is no top-down authority structure. The SBC, at least in theory, is supposed to be very bottom-up, the local churches being the most important, the conventions, the national and state and local, they have no authority over any of the churches. And so we do not exist to serve the convention. The convention exists to serve the churches and help advocate the mission and the ministry as we deem fit. This is why each church gets to send messengers every year to the annual meeting so that we can vote on how resources should be allocate, allocated and to help direct how committees ought to operate. This local church autonomy also means that our cooperation with the SBC is entire, entirely voluntarily. And it's up to each church and her leadership to determine how involved we want to be. But the philosophy of this convention is that we can do much more together than we could ever do individually on our own. And I find that to be true. The 47,000 or so churches pull their resources together in varying degrees to help fund evangelistic efforts. Church plants, the North American Mission Board is the largest church planting network in North America. The resources are pooled to fund 3,600 missionaries all over the world through the International Missions Board. The resources are used to support disaster relief efforts. We are some of the most, uh, most often among the first responders. This is done all over the world as well. And the pooling of these resources also helps to fund six seminaries and their educational efforts in training future leadership. This is what is called the cooperative program. 47,000 plus churches cooperate together in support of these major causes among many others. And so we can do a lot more together than we could ever do on our own. Now at the same time, because each church is independent and autonomous, and while we should hold to a shared set of convictions as stated in the Baptist Faith and Message 2000, not every church holds to them as tightly as we maybe ought to. And not every state convention upholds these shared convictions either. 
And so you may go to one Southern Baptist church here and another there, and it may be nothing like our church at all. There is quite a degree of variation among Southern Baptist churches all over the nation. And for our staff visiting Tennessee, that was made utterly apparent that we do not always share the same convictions with the thousands of other churches we are cooperating with. There are other SBC churches that I would not recommend you to ever go to. And there are other SBC churches that I'm sure their leadership would not recommend that you come to our church as well. I don't think that that means if we don't see eye to eye on everything with everyone that we must necessarily leave. But I also think that the way we cooperate financially should have as its emphasis and its weight that we cooperate the most on the very things which we stand upon convictionally. We're not going to blindly give to SBC institutions that we might have serious concerns about. Adrian Rogers, he was a three-time president of the SBC, he once said that it would be immoral for anyone to ask his church to finance things that undermine that for which they stand. Godly SBC leadership does not want us to give just for the sake of giving. We aren't called to blindly give to SBC entities that we might have serious concerns with. But our Southern Baptist Convention has allowed that we can give strategically and still cooperate by financially supporting those entities and institutions that we do see more eye-to-eye with. The convention is structured in such a way that allows churches like ours to cooperate on our terms, and for that, I am very thankful. And so please uh, pray for our church and our elders as we think through some of these issues and know that the heart of the leadership at our churches is about cooperation, but we are about cooperation in the best ways possible to get the purity of the unadulterated gospel to the very people who have the least access to it. Now, for this year's meeting, I know um, it was unlike others. It made the news. It was on CNN. It was on a lot of news sources with a lot of drama, some of it uh, true, some of it not. But let me be clear that, that what I have read that occurred there is not accurate with my own experience at the same meeting. Surprise, surprise, the news isn't always entirely accurate. But for any of you here who would like to talk more in detail, you can come and find me or Pastor Dave or Bob Moorfield. We are the three elders who had the opportunity to attend. And so it was a, it was a good meeting in many ways. <clears throat> it was eye-opening as well in many ways. And we are very thankful to our God that somehow 47,000 plus churches can cooperate and be a part of a mission that is bigger than any singular local church body. <clears throat> now, with that, all of that being said, finally at this time, I do invite you to take out your Bible or Bible underneath the chair in front of you and turn to the book of Luke. We are in Luke chapter 2, verse 21, as we continue our study through the book of Luke. Luke chapter 2, verses 21 through 24 is our passage. <coughs> That's on page 857. If you are using a church Bible, page 857. <clears throat> Luke chapter 2, verse 21. But before we do look at the text, would you please pray with me? Father, we, we thank you for this time of worship, and, and we thank you that, that brothers and sisters from all over the country can cooperate 
in spreading the gospel and, and spreading your love across the world. As we come to your word, please speak to us in a way that is undeniably you, and that by the Holy Spirit you would open our eyes to see uh, your glory and to know you truly, that, that Jesus Christ might become all the more um, beautiful to us and that everything else by comparison would grow strangely dim. We ask that you would please save those who do not know you. We know that only you can do that. And we ask that you would please keep us and continue to save us who do know you. Help especially those of us who are struggling with, with this situation or that one or this sin or that one. Please show us how much it is that you love us. Glorify yourself. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The birth of Jesus Christ has been described by Luke in both the most humble of ways and it has also been described in the most glorious of ways. The person of Jesus is so glorious that he needs a forerunner to prepare his way. And it's even in his forerunner's birth announcement made by an angel that causes a priest of God to fear in the temple and to become mute for the better part of the year when he doubted. The person of Jesus is so glorious that his conception could not have been by any human man. But his conception must be by the Holy Spirit within the womb of a virgin, a conception like no one else in history. Jesus is so glorious that when he is born, suddenly the heavenly host of angelic beings appears and the glory of Yahweh himself is shining around them and they have to praise God, saying glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. That the coming of this child is somehow the display of the glory of God in the highest of ways. And that in the coming of this child, it is somehow the only way true peace on earth could ever be achieved. The birth of Jesus Christ has been described in the most glorious of ways, and yet it has also been described in the most humiliating of ways as well. You got a pregnant unmarried teenage mom walking around town, whispers about Jesus' conception. I wonder who his real daddy is. You have a poor family, rejected room and board, and Jesus' first bassinet is a manger for animals. There is no crowd, no hubbub, no warm welcome, but Jesus is born where no child should be born, and he is born where he is born because a Roman ruler demanded a census because the people of God are a conquered people, and they have to obey a pagan. This is a low of lows. And so there is glory and humility in his birth. And as we come to our text, we have a description of some of the events of the very first few months of Jesus' life and Luke shows to us the kind of parents Jesus had and the kind of things Jesus is subjected to. And we will see that same paradox of glory and humility this week and next. But in our passage today, we find this abject lowness once again. We read in verse 21. <clears throat> and at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. The first requirement Jesus endures here is circumcision. 
and every good Jewish boy would be circumcised because God had directed Abraham, Father Abraham, the nation of Israel came from Father Abraham's line. God had directed Abraham in Genesis 17 that the mark of God's covenant people, the promised people, is circumcision upon the eighth day. It is also prescribed in the law of Moses, Leviticus 12.3, that every male child should be circumcised on the eighth day. Circumcision was an important physical mark of distinction, a mark that signified that you were of the people of God, and it wasn't done then like it is done today. I have three sons. I know how boys get circumcised today. Maybe that's TMI. But the doctors use a special device, takes it off in like half a second. And the baby, as peaceful as that baby gets rolled in, screaming and crying right after. And there's this recovery time. In these days, a father did it, not a doctor. And he did it with a flint knife, not a special device. And it took a lot longer than half a second. Jesus' initial week of life outside the womb is filled with pain. At one point in the book of Genesis, chapter 34, two brothers somehow convince an entire town to be circumcised, and then those two brothers wipe out the entire town of men in vengeance because the men couldn't even protect themselves against just two guys because of the amount of pain they were in post-circumcision. But circumcision wasn't just for the sake of pain, nor for the sake of having a physical mark. Deuteronomy 10, 16 commands Israel, circumcise therefore the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. That's not physical. There is a sense that circumcision of the flesh pointed to a deeper circumcision of the heart because God's people were supposed to obey God and fear God and walk in his ways and love him and serve him with all of their souls and hearts. This was to be the real distinction between them and the pagan nations. Not just a physical force can cut off, but a heart's disposition towards Yahweh. Jeremiah 4.4 refers to uncircumcised ears that can't and won't listen to the word of God. Again, we have the same imagery, that what is circumcised symbolizes a cutting away of that which is sinful or filthy or stubbornly opposed or that which is a detriment to knowing God. And so while this is a very physical procedure, the implications were very spiritual. Circumcision, therefore, is this external sign of an internal singularity of devotion to God. This is the mark of God's covenant people that on the eighth day after birth, every male is devoted to Yahweh in this way. But why Jesus? Why does Jesus need to be circumcised? There's nothing that has to be cut away from the Holy Son of God. There's nothing sinful or filthy or stubbornly opposed to Yahweh about him at all. There's no detriment to the second person that the Trinity has, no blockage to knowing and enjoying the Father. This is the Son of God. This is God himself. This is the beloved Son from eternity past. He doesn't have to enter into a covenant with God. He is one with God. So why undergo pain and why undergo a marking that is entirely unnecessary as if he himself were somehow on the outside and a sinner and needed to be brought in by having his filth and sinfulness cut away? And it is within the first eight days of Jesus' life that we begin to understand what it is that he's undertaking. 
we begin to understand a little bit of what Paul explains in 2 Corinthians 5.21. For our sake, he made him who knew no sin to be sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. We begin to see a little bit of what Paul says in Galatians 4.4. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. The Son of God has no sin, and yet he became sin. Jesus is under no law, yet he is born under the law to save those condemned by the law. Galatians 5.3, I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law, circumcised or not physically. No human being has ever been able to keep the whole law of God. And therefore, there must be one who can keep the whole and entire law to save those who are unable to do so. We need the sinless and the perfect to rescue the sinful and the marred. And it is on this eighth day, being circumcised when he ought not to be, that Jesus is taking upon himself the obligation we could not perform and the debt we could not pay and the sin we could not atone for to wash the filth that is not his and to answer for the iniquity that he did not commit by the shedding of his own blood. We see a pointer to that even here. This cry and scream is pointing to a much deeper cry and a louder scream that is to come upon that cross. And while Jesus' blood is being shed here upon his own flesh with a flint knife in the hands of Joseph, a man who needs to be saved himself, the name that his parents give to him on this same eighth day is Jesus. And the reference again, Matthew 1, 21, she will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. Jesus, Jesus, Yeshua in the Hebrew, the Lord to save. And so Jesus' very own name, every time you called him, the Lord of salvation, the Lord saves. He must save because we cannot save ourselves. Which will make Simeon in our next passage, verse 30, rejoice with his old eyes laying him upon this baby Jesus. He rejoices and he says, my eyes have seen your salvation, this circumcised child is God's salvation. And so the baby in the manger is cut, and he's named Jesus, the one in which there is no corruption of heart at all, being treated as if he were as corrupt of heart as you and as me. This is a humiliating condescension of God himself for the sake of the ones he loves so dearly. And perhaps there is a lesson here for us, brothers and sisters, about condescension and humility. That if the Son of God and God himself submitted to something he did not need for himself and endured a pain which was not his to endure, we ought to mimic our Savior. We can endure some stuff that we shouldn't have to. We can persevere through things that shouldn't be ours to persevere. And as we go through whatever it is the world throws at us or whatever it is the sucky people at work put you through, may our boast be, for though I am free from all, yet I have made myself servant unto all, 
that I might win more of them, 1 Corinthians 9, 19. I wonder if you ever think that submission and endurance and long-suffering and humility and the laying aside of your rights and the laying aside of your comforts is one of the supreme ways we honor and glorify and point to our Lord and Savior. I don't know that the church and that Christians are, are exactly known for this kind of disposition as much as we ought to be known for this kind of disposition. And you can fill in the blank in your own life for what kind of rights and comforts you need to lay aside for the good and salvation of the people around you. Verse 22, we continue. And when the time came for <coughs> purification, according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present them to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice according to, his, what is, according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. While our Savior humbly submitted himself to things he did not have to submit himself to, we find in this same passage this deep humility in Jesus' earthly parents as well. Humility unto God is obedience unto God. It's, it's not a feeling. Humility unto God is obedience unto God. And Joseph and Mary, they follow the law, they obey the word of God to a T. Notice how often the phrase the law is repeated in our verses, even in the next set of verses. The law of Moses, the law of the Lord, the law of the Lord. Five times in verses 22 through 39, Luke is making the point very clearly that in every respect, Jesus and his earthly parents have submitted themselves to the word of God. They didn't think themselves above it or think that obedience is somehow optional, even though, Mary, I just gave birth to the Messiah. And what we have here first is a ceremony of purification. The law say that a woman who gives birth to a son, Leviticus 12, is ceremonially unclean for seven days initially, and then at the end of 33 days after she's recovered, she shall bring forth both a burnt offering and a sin offering to the priest. And so for the normal person, the burnt offering is a lamb a year old and the sin offering a pigeon or a turtle dove, a bird. But for the poorer person who couldn't afford this lamb, that person could bring a bird and a bird instead. And so we know what tax bracket Joseph and Mary are in because their offering is the offering of the poor. They didn't have excess income but they still follow the law of God and humbly submit to it in obedience. Secondly, we have the ceremony of the presentation of the firstborn, verse 22. They brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. The origin of this dates back to the Exodus. If you remember, God, through Moses, brought a series of plagues upon Egypt who had enslaved Israel. Let my people go, God said through Moses to Pharaoh. Let my people go, and yet Pharaoh would not. And so God, in a show of his might and power, brought plague after plague after plague, and Pharaoh was stubborn in his rejection of God until the very last plague, which was the very worst one, where the firstborn of every household was slain. And all of Egypt had lost a child that night. Israel did not lose a child that night. 
because they had slain a lamb, the Passover lamb in the child's place. And they painted the doorposts with its blood so that the angel of death, wherever blood had already been slain, no more blood would be slain. For a lamb had died in substitution. This doesn't mean that Egypt was guilty and Israel was innocent. No, everywhere blood had to be shed. Either the firstborns or the lambs. If an Israelite didn't hide under that blood, there would be bloodshed in their home as well. Israel wasn't sinless. And so because for Israel, the blood of the lamb had protected her firstborn, the firstborn now of every family was to be dedicated or presented to the Lord because that firstborn now belonged to Yahweh. And so when a family brought forth and presented their firstborn, it was an acknowledgement that this child and this son was bought with blood. This child and this son is not my own. This child and this son belongs to the Lord. Now, by this time in the first century, many children would not be brought because their parents would pay the ransom price instead. It's kind of a head nod and a token towards this principle, and then they would get on with their lives. But Mary and Joseph, they don't do that. They actually bring Jesus, and they present him to Yahweh, acknowledging ever so clearly that this child, God, is more yours than he is ours. This child truly belongs to you. These are the parents that Jesus grew up under. And brothers and sisters, this principle is true of all of our children. They are more gods than they are ours. Parenting is a stewardship of what is his, not an ownership or a possession for ourselves or our own wills or our own plans, that they exist somehow for our own glories. Our children belong to him more than they belong to us. And when you come to a place where you can genuinely and truly believe that, you will parent them accordingly. And so we have Jesus's humble earthly parents who do not think themselves above the law. I mean, they're not spouting out virgin birth. Therefore, we don't have to obey. Or we're so poor, God will understand when we don't give. Or this child is so glorious, we know that the angel sung to him, and we can't wait to have this child's success make us look great because he is our kid, and when he looks good, we look good. No, they, they do not view themselves as above the word of God, even when the son of God has been born into their family. They obey, and they are poor and this child of theirs is God's first before he is their very own. These are Jesus' earthly parents. Our Bible reading a couple weeks ago, Proverbs 15, 16, better is a little with the fear of the Lord than great treasure and trouble with it. Do you believe that? If I could speak to our parents in the room, the best thing that you can ever provide for your children is your own godliness. Not more cash, not nicer vacations, not more opportunities for them to succeed in this way or that way or get into this college or that one or develop at this sports camp or that science camp and whatnot. The best thing that you could ever give to your children is your own genuine devotion to Yahweh as an example and as a pointer to the reality of what it is that we believe. When our children witness 
our submission to God in obedience to him, no matter what situation we find ourselves in. They will have a testimony to his kind and good lordship of our lives. This is Christian parenting. And it really is quite simply to believe what it is that you believe and to actually live as if it were true. Now, that's not only for parents, but for those without children as well. You are bought with a price. The life you live is not your own. Therefore, honor God with your bodies, 1 Corinthians 6.20. And so we have the humility of Jesus' earthly parents displayed in these opening weeks of Jesus' life after birth. But we also see again in these same verses Jesus' own humility. You know, Jesus was a real baby. He had to grow and learn. And at the end of Luke chapter 2, verse 52, the text says there, <clears throat> Jesus increased in wisdom. It means he had to learn. And in stature, he had to grow. And in favor with God and man, Jesus actually had to learn things just like we each had to learn things. To crawl before he walked. He had to talk, learn how to talk, use the bathroom, behave in society. Now, Jesus is sinless. He is a perfect newborn. He was a sinless one-year-old, and yet Jesus still had to increase in wisdom and in stature, which means he needed models to learn these things from. Hebrews 5, 8, although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. It's not as if Jesus had disobedience to be corrected, and therefore he must learn obedience. No. But he had to have this positive obedience actualized in his life as exemplified by the godly people around him. Jesus, in this sense, learned godliness. And this is humility of humilities here. That the Son of God, the Son of God, God himself, places himself in a position to learn obedience and grow in godliness from the very people he came to save. You can't get lower than that. As Joseph circumcises Jesus, it's really Joseph who needs circumcision of heart more than Jesus ever did. As Joseph and Mary present the offerings of purification because of the birth process, it's not Jesus who ever needed to be purified or ever had to have an offering given, and yet he himself would be the offering that every sacrifice points to, as Joseph and Mary obey so that Jesus' watching eyes could learn what obedience to the word of God looks like, Jesus would be the only one to really obey and truly obey inside out, heart, mind, soul, strength, the word of God entirely, so that he might be the proper savior of the very ones he learned this obedience from, and also witness the disobedience of in his upbringing. Our kids know all of the ways we're whack. We are the Son of God submitting himself to the Word of God even though he is the Logos, the very Word of God himself. This is humility, abject condescension. This is the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that he, being rich for your sakes, became poor so that by his poverty we might become rich, 2 Corinthians 8, 9. From the very first week of Jesus' life, he obeyed everything 
perfectly, something none of us have ever done. He never sinned, not even one time. All this so that he might become the perfect offering, the perfect sacrifice, the true Passover lamb, that by his shed blood, by his screams and his cries, by him absorbing the wrath of God against our sin upon himself, we might be saved because if he suffered, we never have to. He became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. It means in the shedding of his blood upon the cross now. God looked in Jesus as if he committed all the stuff you committed, as if that lust in your eyes was a lust in his eyes, as if the anger of your heart was the anger of his heart, that bitterness that you can't get over, Jesus is viewed as if it was his own bitterness that he couldn't get over. The lies you've told, the hypocrisy you've had, the envy, the trash talk, the rage, the gossip, the ungratefulness, the murmuring as if it was his very own and not yours. The very things that you would be ashamed of if anyone ever found out about them, Jesus Christ owned them and took them upon himself as if they were his very own. Isaiah 53, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted, but he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was a chastisement that brought us peace, and with his stripes we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Everyone we have turned to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. I saw a video clip online of Pastor Alistair Begg. And he asked a question. If you were to die tonight and you were gaining entry into heaven, what would you say? If he answered that and, I, and if I answered that, in the first person, we've immediately gone wrong because I, because I believed, because I have faith, because I am this, because I'm continuing. Loved ones, the only proper answer is in the third person. Because he, because he, because he. You know, if you're not a Christian this morning, and you're here, or maybe you know some things about Jesus. Christianity is not, you know, I had this epiphany. I'm going to change my life. I'm going to turn right now instead of left. And I'm making all these resolutions to become a better person. That's why I go to heaven. That's not Christianity. Christianity's confession is, I must be saved. I can't help myself. I must be saved. Jesus had to save me. He had to live for me. He had to die for me. He had to rise for me. He had to ascend for me. And one day, he's going to come back for me. And because I believe all this is true, I can never be the same person again. That's our confession. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for sending your son, Jesus, naming him Jesus. He is our salvation. He is your salvation. And I pray, God, that no matter what we're going through in this year and in this life, you would help us to realize actually 
how much it is that you love us, that you would condescend to us this much, that you would endure this much, that you would put our sin upon your son, and that we might have life. I pray, God, that more and more you would show us how worthy Christ is to be the center of everything that we are. And would you please glorify yourself in the way that we live our lives and help us enjoy everything that we have in you, in Jesus Christ. It is in his name we pray, amen.